Um, the passage for tonight is Luke 5, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So if you have a Bible, um, if you have a Bible, page 1,198. Uh, Luke 5, 17 through 26. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things. Thank you, Dale. Hello, church. Uh, Justin, do we sound good? We sound good. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I was just thinking that lately I've been a sucker for the news cycle. Well, not lately, all the time. And no matter how often I check it, it does not bring me hope, does not bring me encouragement. And I'd be willing to bet that a good number of us are checking the news more often than ever lately finding ourselves consumed with it. And it makes sense because after all, we're in greatest crisis the world has seen in a long time. How often lately have you found your thoughts gravitating toward coronavirus and the crisis that we're in rather than gravitating towards Jesus? I know for me, it's easier to think endlessly about the problems that the world is in, rather than thinking about how Jesus has already solved my greatest problem. And if we wanna spend more time focusing on Jesus, how do we even do that? What about him and what he has done can help draw our attention away from ourselves and onto him? It's amazing that as we're just walking through the gospel of Luke, week by week, passage by passage, we just so happen to be at this exact passage that answers these questions in the midst of our situation. I'm trusting that God has a word for every one of us this evening as we look together in his word at what he has to say to us. So let's jump right into our text. So far, we've seen a handful of stories of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And now we're going to get to see a story, one of the most important stories in his ministry as he's establishing his identity to the people of Israel. This is what verse 17 says. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come up from every village of Galilee 
and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now for the first time in the story of Luke, we see some new characters enter the story. Who are they? They're the Pharisees and they're the teachers of the law. And what we'll find as the story unfolds is that these are actually the enemies of Jesus. They appear as if they should be his friends. They're religious people, but they turn out to be his enemies. And as the story goes on, they're going to oppose him more and more harshly. They're going to slander him. They're going to accuse him. And they're even going to incite violence and murder against him. And this is going to be the first of Jesus's confrontation It says in verse 17 that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So we've taught already in the Gospel of Luke about how Jesus performed all the miracles that he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we have on one side is the institutional authority and powers of the flesh versus a humble man who's coming against them with nothing except the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the ability to heal people. Now, what, how will this conflict unfold? What will happen next? Verse 18 says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. That word behold is like an explanation point where Jesus is saying, pay attention, or where Luke is saying, pay attention to what I'm presenting to you. This group of men who bring this man on this bed are not like the Pharisees. They're a different group. They're a contrast to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, on one hand, sit there in judgment and detached um, sort of analysis of Jesus This group of men comes carrying their friend on a bed, knowing that they have nowhere else to go. No one else who can help them except for Jesus alone. That's how we should respond like these men. The Pharisees is how our flesh wants to respond to Jesus and how we should not respond to him. They come as if the only hope for their friend is Jesus. There's no achievement or ability that this man has that can get him to earn the favor of Jesus. All he can do is come to him and ask for help. And to be honest with you guys, being paralyzed is one of my greatest fears. Just be horrible. To not be able to move, to not be able to accomplish, not be able to do anything. And what's so powerful is that this man's paralysis is a picture of what his heart is like and a picture of what my heart is like completely unable to do or achieve anything before God. So when he comes to him paralyzed on bed, he's actually coming to him also with a paralyzed heart. And it's just a little bit clearer that his heart is paralyzed because his body is a picture of what's in his heart. And we tend to think with our young, healthy bodies, we're a young, healthy church. It's easy to think we don't actually need God. But if we were to take an x-ray of our heart and see what it's like apart from the Holy Spirit, it's a lot like this man who is laying on this bed. Any infirmity, including paralysis or coronavirus, is a teacher to us of our deep and sincere need for Jesus. 
this situation is an opportunity for us to learn how vulnerable we really are and how much we really need our Savior at a deeper level than we have forever before. If we try to hoard things and try to take care of the situation on our own, our hearts will not grow in this situation. If we turn to trust and faith in Christ and look to the situation as a teacher to us of how badly we need a Savior, how helpless we are apart from Christ, we will grow. Yet, when these men arrive at the scene seeking help for Jesus, they discover a problem. What is the problem that they discover? Let's take a look at verse 19. It says, but finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So when they arrive to get help from Jesus, they find this crowd, this impenetrable barrier. They can't get through it to get to Jesus. Maybe they try to ask people to move. Maybe they yelled and told them to move. But whatever they tried to do, they couldn't get these people to move. But they're desperate to get to Christ. They do whatever is possible to get to Christ. I hope that that's my response to Christ in the next few weeks, that I'm going to approach him with the same desperation that these men approached Christ as they carried him on his bed. So they scale the house up onto the roof and they dig their hands into the roof and start tearing it apart until they break a hole big enough in the roof to lower this man through. If I was a homeowner, I would not be happy. And then they take his bed and they lower it through and set him on the floor for Jesus. And the crowd parts and gets out of the way. Now they've finally let this man see Jesus. Now I wonder, how does Jesus respond to this desperate attempt to get to him? It says in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this is not the response that I would expect Jesus to have. It says when Jesus saw their faith, how can Jesus see their faith? Face an invisible reality in the heart. Well, besides Jesus's ability to look into our hearts and see what's there, these men's actions were like a window into their soul. The way they acted showed the belief that they had in Jesus. And what Jesus says next should take us by surprise. When we see this man laying there, crippled, unable to move, what we should think of the story is, well, Jesus is going to heal him and make him walk. He exercises healing power at other places in the story. But that's not what he says. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that's a remarkable statement. What Jesus is saying is to this man who's laying there in this bed, your greatest need is not to get up and walk. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. Jesus understood that as bad as this man needed to walk, he needed his sins forgiven even more than that. And by forgiving his sins, he took care of his greatest need. 
No more as he lay on that bed would he lay under the wrath of God awaiting judgment. But even when he was still paralyzed, in the delight and love and acceptance of his father, he was forgiven. This means, church, that your sins being forgiven, when God forgave your sins, it is a bigger moment in your life, a greater miracle than if you were laying paralyzed and unable to get up and God made you walk again. It's a greater miracle than that. The moment that you had faith in your heart and trusted in Christ was the greatest moment that could have possibly happened to you. And I hope, I hope that we're just able to respond with the right level of joy of having our sins forgiven. I can't imagine how happy I'd be if I got my ability to walk back after being paralyzed. Can you imagine that? You're unable to move for months or years and you can walk again. What joy. And yet it's greater than that to have our sins forgiven. I heard this illustration once. Pretend for a moment that you're on death row in a prison cell. You're about to be executed tomorrow. When you're on death row on your last night, they'll bring you a meal of whatever you want. Salmon, prime rib, whatever you want, you name it and you have it. So let's say you order your favorite meal. Favorite meal you could ever want. And they bring it to you. Even though you're enjoying your favorite food, you would not be. Because you know that the next day, what judgment faces you when you wake the next morning. But let's say they didn't bring you the meal and you're sitting there cold and lonely and miserable in your jail cell. But what you do receive is a pardon from the governor saying that your sins, your crimes are pardoned and you get to go free in the morning. My, you'd be happy. Man, you'd be joyful. Even if you didn't have that meal. And the forgiveness of sins is the exact same thing. Yes, we may not have our temporary needs met exactly the way we want them to right now. But we have our eternal needs met. And that should create the greatest amount of joy in Jesus possible. At this moment of coronavirus, having our sins forgiven should cause our hearts to overflow with joy in spite of all the loneliness and fear that we face. Now, perhaps you're like me and you can struggle to feel the weight of this. Like, man, I've heard about the forgiveness of sins 2,000 times. And sometimes it just doesn't seem that meaningful or important to me. I think that often comes because I can underestimate how sinful I actually am. If I understood how sinful I actually was, how much I needed the forgiveness and the grace of God, then I would respond to the forgiveness of sins in the right way. And so I need to become more aware of how paralyzed my heart is, how sinful my heart is apart from Christ, if I'm going to properly rejoice in the forgiveness that he's given me. 
was having a meal with Isaiah Langenfeld a few weeks ago, and he said something that I think really puts things into perspective for us. He brought up this statement that I thought was really poignant, and that is that if your sins have been forgiven, the greatest thing that could possibly ever happen to you has already happened to you. I think a lot of us are dreaming about the future, coming up with our perfect scenario, a perfect plan of, man, when this happens, then the best thing had happened to me. When I have the right job, the right wife, the right kids, the right retirement, whatever. And this text is taking us and turning us around and saying, guess what? The best thing that could ever happen to you already did. So let us focus on that. Some of you might say, no, Ross, forgiveness of sins isn't the best thing. The best thing that could ever happen to me is when I'll stand before the throne of God and see Jesus face to face and we'll be with one another forever in a perfect world. That's the best thing that could ever happen to me. That's a good point. That's a good point. But I want to say that the forgiveness of sins is the reason why that's possible and the reason why that's guaranteed. And so in that sense, the forgiveness of sins is the best thing that could ever happen to us because it means that we'll all be there together one day. You would think the religious teachers would rejoice or be excited or happy at this moment where they see the Messiah come and forgive sins. But that's not how they respond, is it? Take a look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees turn out to be the enemies of faith and justification and Jesus. Their charge of blasphemy means that they are challenging Jesus, saying, you do not have the right to speak about God the way you just spoke about God. And where the right response would have been for them to inquire, Jesus, how can you say these things? Could you please demonstrate or prove that you have the authority to say this? Instead, it's a reflexive accusation and rejection of him. Jesus, you do not have the authority to say these things. And perhaps the reason that they opposed him was because if Jesus came and forgave sins, it would mean that the temple and the sacrificial system was coming to an end and something greater was arriving. And if the sacrificial temple and the Old Testament were coming to an end and something greater was arriving, then these religious elites, these Pharisees, their place of prominence and importance was threatened. And so when Jesus comes, and forgives sins in a way that was against their expectations and against the system that was in place during that time, they recoil and respond with accusation rather than worship. And Jesus is going to confront them here. Jesus is going to show that he has the authority to forgive sins. Let's take a look at verses 22 and 23. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now, the Pharisees' accusation is actually 
a really important one. Because if Jesus doesn't have the authority to forgive sins, if he actually doesn't, then the paralyzed man is still dead in his sins and Jesus hasn't helped him at all. You see what's at stake here? If Jesus doesn't have authority, he's help, he can't help this person. He can come with all the warm thoughts and feelings and emotions and songs in the world, but unless he comes with authority, no sinner can be helped. So he says, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I have this authority. And he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk. Now we'd admit that a normal man cannot do either one of these things. And in one sense, the forgiveness of sins is harder than saying rise up and walk because all sin is against God. And so it takes the highest authority imaginable to forgive sins. No one has the authority to forgive sins except God. But in another sense, to say rise up and walk is harder because you can immediately see and verify whether or not it happened. So by Jesus saying, I'm going to give you this immediate sign. See, I'm going to give you proof that I have the authority to forgive sins. He's saying that if um, I will do something visible so that you can see it and verify it, in order to point to the hidden yet more wonderful work that you cannot yet see, but will one day see at the future work of judgment. I will do a visible work to confirm and show you that I have the authority to do the invisible work. In the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, everything now comes down to whether or not he can make this man walk. He has the authority to give him the ability to walk. He has the authority to forgive his sins. If he lacks the authority to make him walk, he lacks the authority to forgive his sins. So let's see what happens. Who is right and who is wrong? Who has authority and who does not? Verses 24 and 25 show us what happens next. Jesus says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. And put it been laying on and went home glorifying God. Here's the climax of the story. Jesus speaks and the paralyzed man walks. Jesus spoke before and his sins were forgiven with authority. He opens his mouth and what he commands comes to pass. What does Jesus refer to himself in as in verse 24? What does he call himself? Why don't you all take a look? He uses an interesting phrase. He calls himself the son of man. Now, if you're going to figure out what that phrase means, you're actually going to have to Go to the Old Testament. And I'd encourage you some other time to read through Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 13 and 14, to figure out what the, the Son of Man is. But essentially, he's this figure who is prophesied about, who would come to earth 
with the authority of God. Jesus is saying that authoritative man, that son of man, that the prophet Daniel foretold and foresaw, I am he and I have come to you and therefore I can take care of your biggest problem. I have the authority to do that. So church, this sermon is a call for us to rejoice in Jesus's authority. Right now, in your living rooms and bedrooms, are you rejoicing in Jesus's authority? It's really good news that he has authority because that means he has authority over coronavirus. He determines when it starts. He determines when it stops. There's not a bead of sweat on his forehead as he governs the universe with absolute authority. And right now, though your sins without his blood would condemn you and separate you from God, he is speaking with authority. You are forgiven. I accept you. You are mine. And coronavirus will not take you from me. Even if it inflicts, afflicts your body and takes your life, it will not take you from me. I have spoken with authority. That is the sovereign Messiah we're worshiping. Now, there's one last question that I want us to ask. Which is, why did Jesus specifically choose to make him walk? And he could have chosen any number of miracles to demonstrate his authority in the situation. And he chose to make him walk. Now, obviously it was the man's greatest need. So in that way, it made sense. But there's actually something else that I want to suggest to us. Is that throughout the story of the Bible, one thing we find is that holiness which is what happens when you forgive, you get your sins forgiven, you're holy before God. And wholeness of body and health, they actually go together. And if you remember at the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell and were exiled from the garden, is when disease and disability entered into the creation. And so there's a connection between sin and disease and disability. And there's also a connection between holiness and wholeness of health and body. Now, what that doesn't mean is that if someone has a disability or a disease, that they're responsible for that or that they sin worse than someone else. That's not what that means at all. It just means that when we do inevitably, and all of us will experience disease and disability on some level, throughout our lives. That's a testimony and reminder to the fact that we have fallen and our fall is connected to our disease and disability. And in, this, and in the Bible, forgiveness of sins and holiness is connected to wholeness. I just want to read to you Psalm 103, 2 and 3. This is what David has to say. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, and here it is, who heals all your diseases. Forgiveness of iniquity, healing of diseases, hand in hand. And in the Leviticus 21.18, this paralyzed man would actually, if he was a priest, would not have been permitted to go into the holy place in the temple and offer sacrifices on the altar. 
His disability would have actually made him unclean and unwelcome in that part of the temple. Now, why would God do that? Is it because he doesn't like disabled people? No, that's not it at all. It's because his Old Testament sacrificial system is a highly symbolic system that was meant to teach us about who God is. And the man's disability was symbolic of human fallenness. And so he would have not been appropriate for him to been in the holy place. And what we see here is that when Christ is showing up by healing his paralysis, by forgiving his sins, he's removing every barrier of intimacy between him and the person and showing that he's restoring the connection between holiness and whole bodies that we lost when we fell. And what this healing and forgive sins. Let me try to explain that to you. So when our sins are forgiven, it's not a matter of if, but of when we'll be healed. You believe that? When your sins are forgiven, it is not a matter of if, but of when you will be healed. It could be in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. It could be tomorrow when someone prays for you and God answers that prayer and heals your body. It's no longer a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So let me give you this example. If I were to buy a house, feels my realtor, I buy a house, and I get the house, I actually wouldn't get the keys until closing. Now, someone could come to me and say to me, Ross, I don't believe that you bought that house. And Theo could come to me in advance and give me the keys. And I could take those keys and show them to the person and say, yes, I darn well did. And that's what's happening with this healing. This possession that was already belonged to the paralytic in the future. Christ brings it into the present to establish and show that when he spoke with authority to forgive his sins, it really happened and it was really true. So how then, church, should we respond to this amazing authority of Jesus? How do we respond? Verse 26 shows us that the crowd who come to see Jesus and they show us the response that they had. And amazement sees them all. And they glorify God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. They were stunned at what Jesus had accomplished. I would be willing to suspect that amazement and fear has seized us in relationship to the coronavirus and the situation that we're in. And this is a call for us to be more seized, more amazed, more gripped that Christ has come and forgiven our sins than we are with the situation that the world is in. As we sing in worship in the next few moments, I want to invite you to meditate on that. I want you to meditate on the fact that God has forgiven you and your greatest problem, your greatest need is taken care of. 
as, as we go on in the story, in a few short years, Jesus will march to Golgotha, surrender himself to Roman authorities, and his body will be broken and his blood will be spilled. And we will see the weighty price he paid to get the authority to forgive and to heal us. Isaiah 55 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What, what difference church would this make if we spend time mo- focusing and meditating on this Christ and what he's done? The difference it would make is that when we interact in this time of crisis and fear, we would be deep encouragements to one another. The words and feelings and emotions that would come out of you would, be a min- would minister and bless and encourage other people around you. In fact, I want to invite you as we're spending time worshiping the next few minutes to write down some encouragement that God has spoken to your soul during this sermon or some encouragement he speaks to you in the next few minutes. And the next time your DNA meets, I want you to share with them how God has encouraged you. Because in the midst of 10,000 discouragements that we're witnessing and receiving and seeing today, God wants to use each one of you to be a means of encouragement to one another so that we do not lose heart. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for knowing and taking care of all of our greatest need in Christ Jesus. It's amazing even to think about it. And I ask that the knowledge that our sins are forgiven would give our whole church a sense of peace in the midst of the situation we find ourselves. Would you help our worship not to be reduced or destroyed, but because of the situation of Christ and what he has done to be more lively and joyful than ever before? Even right now. Help us to sing with hearts that are burning with love and affection for you, for all that you've done. And would you please especially minister to those who are most alone, most afraid, or most in need right now, and help us to know as a family how to serve them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.